It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you this weekend. By the way, during the week, you can join us uh, every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. on Fox Business, FBN. And if you can't get there at 4... You can text your favorite uh, nine-year-old and she'll show you how to DVR the show. The show does play again at 7 p.m. And here on radio, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can hear us around the country, throughout the world, the entire solar system, including the Milky Way. So um, kind of the most fun event this week was the uh, debate Thursday night on Fox News, sponsored by my pal Sean Hannity, who did a great job. It was Sean's idea. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, and the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. And who do you trust? (laughs) Which is a better state? Red states versus blue states. That's really the theme. Florida red. Cal, blue, red states uh, winning all across the country, all across the country. Spend less, tax less, regulate less, frack and drill more, drill baby drill. That's the red state formula. And it's really crushing the blue states and the migration is all from blue to red. But, But Governor Gavin Newsom didn't want to fess up to any of it. It was quite an interesting debate. Uh, I thought that um, I thought that uh, Ron DeSantis did a very good job. Facts are on DeSantis' side, but he did a good job defending the facts. And uh, Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom, by the way, is an old friend of mine. Uh, I guess I knew him first as mayor of San Francisco. He used to come on my old CNBC show. And he was kind of a moderate Democrat in those days, pro-business for the most part. Married to my friend uh, in those days, married to my friend Kimberly uh, Guilfoyle. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Newsom, Governor Newsom, spent most of his time fibbing, I'll call it, fibbing. But I wanted to put a little harder touch on it, lying, (laughs) but fibbing. And um, probably nowhere as bad as the tax uh, business. The tax is what interested me the most. I mean, Florida has no income tax. I think there's uh, eight states left that doesn't have an income tax. But the great thing about the red states, the reason why they're growing faster than the blues, the reason why their um, unemployment rates are lower And the reason why people are migrating from blue to red, not all about taxes, lifestyles, law and order, uh, supporting cops, parents in the schools, but, um, you know, the blues are left, left and more left. The reds tend to be much, much more conservative. But I'm uh, especially interested in the tax story. California has the highest taxes in the country. Florida, as I said, zero. 
income tax. And by the way, these other states, the other red states, um, there's probably about a dozen of them that are slashing tax rates, or maybe more than a dozen. And they're all moving towards low, flat tax rates, you know, promoting plenty of economic opportunity, incentives to work, save, invest, start new businesses. So you could, you know, you've got, <laughs> and Governor Newsom just tried to, to say it's not true, but it is true. And factoids are all on the side of, uh, of DeSantis. I mean, I'll read you a couple. First of all, California's top income tax rate is 13%. 13. Again, Florida is zero. 13 is more than zero, or zero is less than 13. I mean, I think DeSantis could have put it just that simply. But if you go down the line, California, say, if you make about 125, grand, you pay over 9% in California, zero in Florida. If you're making uh, about $60,000, $65,000 a year, that's close to the median income in the U.S., California is paying 8% tax rate, Florida zero. If you're down in the lower income areas, say you're making $35,000, $40,000 a year, California charges you a 6% tax rate, Florida zero. And somehow, Mr. Newsom decided to dodge it. It's not true. We want to tax the rich, not the middle class. Well, he taxes everybody. It's the same here in New York, by the way. This editorial in the Wall Street Journal, I don't know, a year ago, maybe more. I talked about it on the TV show a lot. We talked about it on the radio a lot. If you live in New York City, lucky us, your top tax rate, state and local, would be, drum roll, 14.8%. 14.8%. Now, if you live in Miami, drum roll, your marginal tax rate is zero. Zero. So, <laughs> what does that tell you? Well, there's an out-migration. Okay, now regarding California, I got some more numbers for you just to have some fun. California versus Florida, total net migration. 2021 and 2022, these are government figures, Census Bureau figures. California lost 750,000 people, and Florida gained 454,000 people. This is just California versus Florida. Mr. Uh, Mr. Gavin Newsom denied that. But those are facts. Census Bureau facts. That's all they are. Or, or you can look at uh, selected things here. 2013 to 2022, so 10 years, Florida gained 1.84 million, California lost 1.85 million. How about this? Government spending per person, California, 14,700. You ready? Florida, 8,800, 8, About half. Unemployment last three years, Florida 4.7, California 6.6. Poverty rate last year, Florida 12.6, California 13.2. Homeless residents, 
Florida, 26,000. California, 171,000. How about that? Average gasoline prices at the pump. Florida, $3.01. California, $4.90. Well, of course, California has a million regulations on gasoline. They're trying to phase out uh, fossil fuels. And again, the highest income tax rate. California, 13.3%. Florida, zero. Zero, kids. So, I don't know. It's a very odd debate. Um, Governor Newsom was kind of swarmy, sarcastic. And um, Governor DeSantis, um, not really Mr. Personality, but he did a good job getting it out. He had some good anecdotes. I guess my favorite one is he told the anecdote about this gentleman who had left California to come to Florida. Why is that? Well, he said because he likes governor, manages the state better, and there's more law and order, and taxes are lower. Well, who was this guy? turns out it was Gavin Newsom's (laughs) father-in-law. So there you have it. I give a lot of credit to... uh, Sean Hannity, who dreamed up the idea of this debate. Uh, I wasn't that keen on it, so kind of like two also-rans this time around in the presidential race, but it was a good debate, very lively debate. Covered a lot of social issues, and Newsom, of course, defended Biden. A very tough thing to do. And uh, DeSantis criticized Biden, which is the right thing to do. DeSantis doesn't uh, doesn't support Trump anymore. That's too bad because Trump helped DeSantis become governor in the first place. Um, and Newsom mocks DeSantis about that, how he's 41 percentage points behind Trump in his home state of Florida. Look, that race is over. I mean, we'll, we'll talk to Roger Stone, the great political consultant, uh, at the top of the next hour, but... Um, Trump will be the Republican nominee, barring some fantabulous setback. And um, I don't think that's what this debate was about. This debate was about red versus blue. This debate was about spending and regulating and economic growth and unemployment and taxes and fracking and the whole movement in this country away from big government socialism, away from overregulation, away from overtaxation, away from the war on fossil fuels. That's really what this debate is all about. And the highlight was Cal versus Florida. And um, give a lot of kudos to DeSantis. The facts are on his side, but he did a very decent job presenting these facts. And um, Sean Hannity, I think, was the real hero of the night. Had a good idea. He was a terrific, even-handed host. Sean just putting it out there. I'm really injecting himself into the debate. Obviously, Sean's a conservative. But, um, I don't know, some good, very interesting. And I think the same thing's going to play out in the presidential race. I mean, let's assume that it's Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And Joe Biden's vision is the blue state vision. California vision, New York vision, Illinois vision, 
etc. Donald Trump's going to be the red state vision. Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and so forth and so on. And to some extent, this race is going to be about the southern states and the sunbelt states, the red states. It's going to swing up into some of the industrial states. That's where the swing states are going to be. But the Republican Party is really the party, the, the red state party. It's the Sunbelt Party. It's the Southern Party. It's the anti-tax policy party. It's the fracking drill baby drill party. And I think it's the party of entrepreneurship. The GOP is the party of rewarding success. The Democrats are the party of punishing success, income leveling, redistribution, war against fossil fuels, high gasoline and grocery prices. So the debate Thursday night between uh, Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis is a preview. It's a preview of the presidential debate, which will be Trump versus Biden in all likelihood. That's what the polls show. I know polls aren't votes, but polls are pretty good snapshots of where the country is. And the winner was DeSantis. And uh, Mr. Trump will embellish. He's a great communicator. He showed how red state values can work in Mr. Trump's first uh, term and how he succeeded with prosperity at home and peace through strength abroad. These fellows uh, Thursday night didn't do anything about foreign policy. But it was a warm-up. And it was kind of a lot of fun. And DeSantis won. And Sean Hannity won. And conservatism won. That's the way it ought to be, folks. Conservatism won. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So there's a big meeting, big confab out at the Reagan Library, which is a beautiful place, by the way. Been there many times. We were there for the second uh, Republican debate, which was sponsored by Fox Business. I did the pre-debate show. Anyhow, they're all talking about defense security. And um, we're going to bring on Steve Forbes in just a few moments, the great Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. But um, one point I want to make here, and it goes to the Israel issue, you know, that you can see the Bidens and Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, tying Israel's hands. We have so many threats around the world now. The axis of evil with Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, etc., etc. We're going to have to beef up our defenses. And I'm just kind of giving you a predicate for the interview with Steve Forbes in a few minutes. And we're going to have to grow in order to throw off enough revenues to increase the defense budget. And hopefully, of course, any increases will be spent wisely and expeditiously and sensibly. It's just painful to watch 
the Biden administration try to tie Israel's hands. And the ceasefire is over. Uh, the hostage exchange is over. Hamas broke the ceasefire. And uh, Israel is now going into southern Gaza, as they must, to wipe out and annihilate Hamas. And it's painful to watch, and we'll talk about this with Forbes, uh, their hands being tied, but not really because the IDF is going to do what it's going to do. But not for lack of trying by the Bidens. And it's a terrible thing. But the bigger issue here is we have to stop appeasing our enemies like Iran and Russia and China, for example. And one way we're going to have to do that is the way Reagan did it, which is growing the economy rapidly at home and then using revenues, tax revenues from growth. You know, you lower tax rates and revenues are going to go up. That's the Laffer curve. And uh, really start picking up our defense spending. So this will be a big issue, and we'll talk about it with Mr. Forbes on the other side of the break. I'm Kudlow. And I'm pulling for Israel every single day. They must destroy and annihilate Hamas once and for all. And the weak-kneed Biden should stay out of the way. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we bring in the great Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. His most recent book is Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Welcome back, Steve. Appreciate you doing this. Steve, a couple things I want to talk about. Just let me begin with this uh, whole business that... um, The Biden administration is doing the best it can to tie Israel's hands. And they sent uh, Secretary of State Blinken, goes uh, back to uh, Jerusalem and meets with the war cabinet and basically tells them, basically tells them, don't unleash. You know, the goal should be to protect civilians, not to annihilate Hamas. And uh, I think this is a gigantic mistake, but it's typical of the Biden administration, and I wonder what your thoughts were on this. Well, what we see unfolding with that and other policies they pursued around the world is really, Larry, a slow-moving train wreck. Uh, tying uh, the Hamas, and we've discussed this on your uh, TV show, they are worse than the Nazis. The Nazis knew that the violence they're perpetrating against the Jewish populations was criminal and wrong, which is why they tried to hide it. Even during the war, they tried to hide it, destroy the camps when the Allies came. Uh, These people, Hamas and others, they are out there open about trying to annihilate Israel, trying to annihilate the Jews. And if this administration does not take seriously Iran uh, saying they're going to annihilate Israel, they just think, oh, that's rhetoric. So whether it's Taiwan, South Korea, Israel, Ukraine, they're tied together. The bad guys in the world feel that we're in retreat. We don't have a stomach to uh, stand up for the free world. And what we're doing in Israel borders on criminal. Uh, They should uh, be supporting Israel. Instead, they say, we won't give you the weapons you need to do the job if you don't uh, do our dictates. 
It is just absolutely. Uh, you, uh, let me just say, Putin and Xi Jinping almost seem to be designing this uh, policy by the Biden administration mm. in terms of what's happening in uh, Gaza. Mm, yes. I mean, I'll read you um, a leak from this meeting with Blinken and the Israeli war cabinet. Blinken, you can't operate in southern Gaza in the way you did in the north. There are two million Palestinians there. You need to evacuate fewer people from their homes, be more accurate in the attacks, not hit U.N. facilities, and ensure that there are not protected areas for civilians. And if not, then not to attack where there's a civilian population, blah, 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 blah. And then the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, the entire Israeli society is united behind the goal of dismantling Hamas, even if it takes months. And then Blinken says, Steve... I don't think you have the credit for that, really. And then Kirby, John Kirby, the White House uh, NSC spokesman, we don't support southern operations unless or until the Israelis can show that they've accounted for all the internally displaced people of Gaza. I mean, really? We're going to have war without casualties after what Hamas did on October 7th and many other times historically? I mean, whose side are they on? Uh, they're on the side of, uh, gee, we can negotiate anything. There looks like what uh, Blinken said in that uh, meeting could have been written by the Palestinians' talking points. Mm. Uh, the terrorist talking points could have been written in Tehran. And it's just an outrage that uh, so they're not so that and uh, the, the idea, oh, don't uh, do anything that might hurt civilians. That's what Hamas does. We know where they put their headquarters in that hospital. We know what they've done in the tunnels. We know what they've done with the hostages. And so uh, what they are doing is just saying to Hamas, as long as you keep hostages and put yourself operations under uh, civilian shields, uh, you're going to be safe to perpetrate more terrorist attack. And don't you believe that Hezbollah is not looking at that, uh, that uh, the Syrians aren't looking at that, the Iranians aren't looking at that, the Chinese and the Russians? What they see is weakness. And uh, when you have weakness, you get trouble, big trouble. That's how he stumbled into World War One. That's how he stumbled into World War Two. And so that's why I just uh, love the stock market doing well, Larry. But I just see this trouble out there of a weak administration forgetting a potentially disastrous situation. I can't wait for these elections next year. Yes, well, ditto. Amen to that. You know, the other thing is all the reports have been that in the course of uh, negotiating uh, so-called temporary ceasefire and hostage return. I mean, everybody wants the hostages to return, sure. But uh, lots and lots of rumors and, frankly, evidence statements that Blinken is involved in, and um, the CIA director Burns with right. the Qataris and the Egyptians to have a permanent truce, I mean, to stop the war so that Israel's job is not done, and we'll go through this whole thing all over again. Hamas will survive. They'll still be uh, in parts of the southern Gaza, and they'll attack Israel again. I mean, a, a permanent truce is exactly the wrong thing. The job is not yet done by Israel. And there's no such thing as a permanent truce in that uh, war. Hmm. And all it is is just a truce for the next round of uh, warfare. And so do the job, do the job now, and uh, send a message to the world. You do something horrific, you are going to pay for it. And that's why I'm delighted the Israelis, uh, I don't know who they leaked it to, 
but I'm delighted they made clear whether these Hamas leaders are in Turkey, Syria, wherever they go, they're going to be hunted down. You do certain things, you will pay the price. That was the whole point of creating Israel, to know that uh, the Jewish people are going to have a homeland and they're going to make sure that if they're attacked, uh, the enemies are going to be uh, pursued around the world. That's what they did after the Munich uh, slaughter of the Israeli athletes in 72. Virtually mm-hmm. every uh, terrorist involved in that operation was hunted down successfully. And that's what mm-hmm. you have to do if you want a safe, sane world where you can have prosperity, you can have freedom, opportunity to get ahead. You've got to snip this uh, barbarism, Nazism modernized, in the bud. Yeah, I mean, the other side of this remains, Steve Forbes, that um, Iran and its proxies continue to attack U.S. military assets in the Middle East, and the Biden administration essentially does nothing about it. And so that's the appeasement issue that you and I were talking about on the TV show, and and so far nothing has changed. Pinpricks, that's all the Bidens have done. They haven't taken out oil fields or training centers in Iran. No shots across the Iranian bow. And uh, again, this seems to me to project American weakness. I mean, this is not only about Israel, right? They're at war with the United States. I just don't know if the Bidens understand that. They don't. And what they're doing is a caricature of, uh, of, uh, of appeasement, uh, that uh, negotiation for negotiation's sake. They seem to have this idea that the world is sort of a version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, where if you just get together and talk, everything will be well. And they can't shed the illusions that they hold about the world, uh, which is why when reality kicks in, whether it was uh, uh, the seizure of Crimea in 2014 by Putin, other acts of aggression <clears throat> moving into Syria, Obama's fake uh, red lines and the like, uh, you get, uh, you get uh, worse and worse uh, reactions. And uh, they, I mean, again, it looks like their foreign policies written out of Beijing and Tehran and Moscow. Mm. Really perverse permanent yeah. truce. No, it guarantees permanent terror and permanent uh, decline of civilization. And I don't think <clears throat> these Gulf state Arab countries, I don't think they're in love with Iran at all. But oh, the problem. You know that. And that's why they focus, Larry, on Qatar. Mm. Qatar, whatever you want to call the place, because the other uh, Gulf states, they want Hamas destroyed Mm. behind the scenes. The Egyptians don't want a bunch of Gazans coming into their country. But make no mistake, uh, they don't like the Muslim Brotherhood, which is what Hamas is an offshoot of going Mm. back to the 1920s. They don't want that. The Saudis don't want it. You know, in public, they worry about the streets, so they keep silent and do the usual uh, noises about, uh, you know, permanent truces and stuff like that. But behind the scenes, they want Hamas destroyed. They want a, a reassurance that if they're in line with the U.S., they're not going to be destroyed. Right now, the message we're sending is the old adage, uh, you don't want to be an enemy of the United States, but worse is being an ally of the United States. Hmm. Not a good uh, situation. No, no. See, that's a key point. They're watching us, watching the U.S. government here, the Biden administration, and they're not seeing any strength. So that puts the other Arab countries in a very difficult and delicate position. And so they're going to lose confidence at some point. I mean, the Bidens should just stand aside, step away, 
let the IDF do what the IDF's going to do. I call it let Israel be Israel, let the IDF be the IDF, and get the job done once and for all. And the amazing thing is the Israelis go out of their way uh, to avoid civilian casualties. They take casualties to try to avoid uh, civilian casualties. And instead of being uh, praised for for that, trying to fight an impossible war with people who use uh, civilians as human shields, instead of being praised for trying to uh, avoid civilian casualties, they get criticized. You fight back. Oh, you're naughty. And another thing uh, in terms of looking at the world, don't think Asian nations are looking. Uh, do we have to make a, a appeasement peace with China because the U.S. is no longer reliable? We're just creating a very, very dangerous and unsafe world by what we're doing now in the Middle East. Nice. The whole world's watching. Steve, let's take a quick break. I want to come back on the other side of the break, and I want to talk about this uh, defense conference out at the Reagan Library. And I want to talk about something you told me on the TV show this past week. We're going to have to spend much more money on defense uh, in order to deal with the problems of the day. But we're going to have to grow the economy the way Reagan did in order to have those resources. It was a terrific insight you had. Folks, we're talking with the great Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. His most recent book is Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. I'm Cudlow. We'll be back with Forbes. Please stay with us. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with the great Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. And uh, his most recent book is Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Steve, when you came on the TV show, we briefly talked about um, the need to build up American defenses I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but I think we're less than 3% of GDP for uh, defense spending. We probably should be double that, given the threats that you've outlined this morning on the radio. And your response, which was very insightful, um, yes, absolutely, we're going to have to allocate more to defense, but we're going to have to grow more rapidly to do it. And I would just add, um, now I do agree with that. Not only is that a Reagan-esque point of view, but we've only been growing less than 2%, really. I think it's like 1.8% the last nearly 25 years, and that's not going to do it. So we need strength at home to give us strength abroad. Well, that's right, and that's another example of the bankruptcy of this uh, whole uh, Biden policy which, by the way, on Iran, nuclear power, we don't want that. And by the way, the Obama administration, Larry, was very comfortable with the idea of Iran dominating the Middle East, uh, which is just shocking. But in terms of the American economy, this is one reason why people feel so anxious about the future. These people don't know how to create the conditions for economic growth, creativity, opportunity, uh, more advances that enhance our quality of life and provide for our defense in this crazy world. And so it's very simple. Uh, you reduce tax rates so people can have a uh, focus on uh, doing investments for the future, a stable dollar. So you don't have to hedge everywhere, which is a cost and means less investment in, 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 in the future, uh, less regulation. Uh, starting, unfortunately, it looks like the whole EV thing, electronic vehicle thing is collapsing on its own uh, because people just don't want them. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Motors is facing, even though it's flush with cash right now, they're having a big stock buyback. 
Uh, they look at a future where for TVs, they go broke. Ford, as you know, lost $60,000 in each electronic vehicle they sold in the third quarter. So it's, uh, the, these bankrupt policies have to be reversed. So if you have stable dollar, low tax rates, i.e. a flat tax, I would even, that would be the best of things. Removing all these idiot regulations that stand in the way of people getting ahead, by golly, you would see this country prosper. Not only would that provide resources for defense, but also be a model for the rest of the world, as we saw in the 80s, uh, to get their act together. After the Reagan tax cuts, as you know, 50 countries enacted in the next few years after that uh, their own substantial tax cuts, and the world blossomed. Yes, well said, well put. Um, the defense guys, I think defense experts have got to come to grips with this, that the two are linked. The economic growth uh, formula is linked to building up our defense, which would give us strength around the world again. I'm not sure they're there, but I think that's a theme that has to be emphasized again and again. I think it has to be emphasized among Republicans in Congress, and I think it has to be emphasized among Republicans, you know, inside the defense establishment. I had interviewed okay, Bill get, Hemmer. Get rid, of, get rid of this climate change stuff, you know, in yes. terms of the military and woke stuff. Focus on getting a real military. Start with the, the Marines. Thankfully, it didn't go whole hog for this crazy stuff. But uh, you got to, you got to, uh, and, and, and our military leaders. Maybe we need a whole new bunch who recognize prosperous economy means a strong military. You can't have one without the other. Actually, you know your point about the climate change and the uh, war against fossil fuels. I mean, fossil fuels and nuclear, very important for the next fifty years or longer, in order to power the economy and power. The military. What the Bidens are doing is, you know, trying to rule out fossil fuels. They won't touch nuclear because it's politically incorrect. But those are key points. I mean, probably for the next century. And it affects us at home, but it also affects our military. That's right. And the thing, too, about uh, energy, just to take uh, take uh, the uh, whole energy sector, which is a huge consumer of energy. The cloud, for example, now consumes more than twice as much energy hmm. as the entire nation of Japan, third largest economy in the world. Technology today in the cloud absorbs twice as much uh, electricity as Japan does. So there's huge appetite out there for energy. We need every source possible, and we can produce it cheaply here. The whole drilling revolution, the whole fracking revolution came because of technological advances, hmm. and that's what we want. Natural gas is a clean fuel. If they stop mucking around on the putting all these barriers up on nuclear, then we've seen that can be safe, and it doesn't uh, pollute the environment. Mm. Hello. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. It's such a key point. Steve, what's the economy look like to you right now? Uh, I think uh, it's amazing how resilient this economy is, which means that if we pursue the right policies, it's going to be a wondrous thing to behold. But there are real headwinds out there. Uh, we see it in uh, what uh, people, especially lower-income people, the ones who benefited most from the tax cuts that you helped shepherd through in the Trump years in Congress, uh, though those uh, stand to be uh, jeopardized in 2025. So you have really uh, people in upper incomes doing okay overall, but lower incomes, they're the ones who get smashed hardest by the kind of environment we have today where interest rates have soared. And uh, job uh, wage growth is not, uh, despite what Gavin Newsom says, is not growing. 
I love how he said with a straight face, Larry, that working people in California pay less taxes than they do in Florida <laughs> or Texas. I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. And uh, and the sun sets in the morning, not in the evening. I mean, well, we had, <laughs> we had we we looked at the the California progressive tax structure. So uh, you earn forty fifty thousand dollars a year, you're going to pay six percent tax rate. Six percent is not nothing, but if you live in Florida, you pay zero. And I maintain that zero and, and, and the was, one, zero is lower than six. Look, and, and, the, and the one thing in that uh, thing that uh, Hannity put up, uh, the one area where California has a slight advantage in um, the property tax rates, mm-hmm. 0.75 average versus 0.91. Then you, but when you account for how housing is uh, artificially so much more expensive in California, mm-hmm. you're going to pay less property tax in florida because you don't have to pay three times as much for a house as you do in california so they lose everywhere (laughs) i mean that that debate is apocryphal that debate should be a leading indicator of the presidential debate red versus blue you know taxes and regulations versus no taxes and regulations i mean that that's the way that should i mean i give hannity a lot of credit for that uh, I'm sorry Gavin Newsom decided to sort of fib his way through it. Uh, but I thought DeSantis did pretty well making his points. But that's, you know, you've got a clear divide. But look, at we've got to set growth targets, Steve, 3 to 4%, yes. I think, uh, which means... And, and it's doable. Yes, I mean, this, we've this, seen this, it done. Yeah, and uh, as you've pointed out in the past, if you have 3.5% growth rates, guess what happens to those things like Social Security mm. and Medicare, mm. those uh, so-called entitlements, suddenly you've got a lot of time to get new policies in for Social Security for younger people. And you don't have to take anything away from those who are on Social Security or about to go on Social Security. I wish these candidates would get off the idea, oh, we must raise the retirement. People don't like to have things taken away from them. And you don't have to take things away from them on, on, the, on Social Security. Yeah, so I wish gross. the GOP would stop acting like... Uh, dentists who don't uh, give you anesthesia when they do root canal (laughs) (laughs) root canal without novocaine steve forbes chairman editor-in-chief of forbes media folks you can still buy this book inflation what it is why it's bad and how to fix it steve thank you ever so much thank you larry appreciate it very much folks we're going to take a break on the other side of the break political analyst and consultant roger stone we're going to talk about the state of the race we're going to talk about whether Robert Menendez should have been tossed out of the Senate since they, they got rid of the Republican. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back after all of this. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. We've got a number of things to talk about with our next guest, Roger Stone famed political consultant and strategist and also the host of WABC Radio's The Roger Stone Show, which plays Sundays from 4 to 6 p.m. Roger, thank you for doing this. We appreciate it very much. To be with you. Roger, I want to, I got a bunch of things for you, but I want to start out with a wonderful story. Uh, George Santos, George Santos versus Robert Menendez, okay? This is a great story. So Santos expelled from the House yesterday, right? And he admitted fabricating much of his biography and 
Federal prosecutors have accused him of laundering campaign funds, defrauding donors. He had spa treatments that he scored against his uh, congressional budget. Botox, Hermes, I don't know what else he bought. But it's very interesting. Uh, Democratic Senator John Fetterman, I think he was on The View, Roger. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think he said it on The View. Said, yeah, okay, Santos uh, did kind of a bunch of bad, small things. But he called Santos, he said, Menendez is the senator from Egypt. Menendez is the senator from Egypt, not New Jersey. He said, um, Santos did a bunch of small things, but we ought to get rid of Menendez too. Now, that's interesting coming from a guy like John Fetterman. But what do you, what do you make of this story? No conviction, didn't go to the courts, they got rid of Santos, and yet Menendez, the charges against him for spying and leaking information to Egypt, as well as a lot of corruption and monetary fraud. What do you make of this, Roger Stone? What's this all about? You know, Larry, uh, the legendary Adam Clayton Powell was expelled from Congress only after he was convicted of crimes. Mm. Uh, I think that should be the standard. Uh, either you're going to expel both Senator Menendez and Santos, both of whom are charged, but neither of whom have been convicted of crimes, or you're not. But this is yet another example of the two-tier justice system where a prominent and powerful Democratic senator remains in power despite far more serious charges, uh, as opposed to George Santos, who appears to have a bunch of stupid but illegal uh, but more venial sins. Uh, and uh, it's interesting now to see Santos dropping these truth bombs about some of his colleagues, filing a series of ethics complaints against them on his way out the door. Uh, I'm not particularly a fan of Soros, but there really should be one standard. And if, if Santos is convicted, he should be expelled. But he hasn't been convicted yet. Uh, or could, or if, the, if it's a new standard, then expel both of them. Yeah, and probably several others, too. Uh, with ethics charges. I mean, I think it's a big problem. No conviction, and they threw him out. Now, they could have put him on ice, uh, could have suspended his committees and so forth. They could have even stopped him from voting. But the voters voted him in. If the voters want to vote him out next year, fine. But you're right, man. I mean, <laughs> this is very selective kind of stuff. And what do you think of a guy like Fetterman saying this? I mean, I'm going to have to praise John Fetterman. Uh, this is the second time he said something that made sense to me. He, he made a lot of sense on uh, on the Middle Eastern issues regarding the war in Israel, something he said about a week ago. But in the meantime, Eric Swalwell actually, you know, is seduced by uh, and has sex with a red Chinese spy mm. who in turn places a person in his office, which is significant because he's on the House Intelligence Committee and therefore he is entitled to access to nationally classified documents and information, but he pays no penalty whatsoever. He's not he is not suspended under the Democrats. That's not surprising. But he he is uh, he has his committee assignments under the Republicans. He pays no penalty whatsoever. Actually, I think what he did is just as serious as what uh, George Santos has done. Probably yeah. more serious. Yeah, because he yeah. may have he may have endangered national security. And what about, you know, take this a step further in the Biden administration. You've got Iranian cutouts in key positions in the uh, State Department and Defense Department. In fact, uh, 
this guy, Robert Malley, who was negotiating a return to the Iranian nuclear deal, right? So he lost his uh, his national security classification, but, 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 nobody in the State Department will tell us why. And meanwhile, he placed one of his protégés, who was very much an Iranian cutout, very much in touch with the Iranian mullahs before she goes anyplace or says anything, and she still passed her security clearance in the Defense Department. She's the chief of staff of the assistant secretary uh, for uh, something or other, I think, um, I can't remember, op uh, clandestine operations, if I'm not mistaken. But, I mean, what do you think of that? Why aren't we looking at those kinds of things as well, since we seem to be sweeping the floor with George Santos? Uh, this is the greatest single spy scandal in the American government since Alger Hiss. Hmm. Uh, we ha we ha actually have Iranian cutouts making policy in this administration uh, this is this is these are spies uh, and nothing. First of all, the media doesn't cover it. You'll find it covered in alternative media. You'll hear about it here on WABC. I interviewed Cash Patel on my show about yep. this. I yep. interviewed Lee Smith on my show at WABC radio, which is four to six on Sundays uh, about this. But you won't hear it uh, on CNN or MSNBC or ABC, NBC, CBS. Uh, you won't read about it in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. So uh, once again, uh, the, the, we're in an information, information war. This is a shocking scandal, but it gets no coverage. And more precisely, nobody in the Biden administration moves to clean this up. So mm. we take out the head spy, but we leave all the people he hired mm. and infiltrated the government with in place. It really makes very little sense. Yeah, she was... Um... She was the chief of staff of the Assistant Defense Secretary for Special Ops, Special Operations. And that gives her privileged look at all these documents that will pass over her desk. These are secret, highly classified documents. And I don't know, the Bidens may not realize it or not, but we're at war with Iran. I don't think they realize that we're at war with Iran. Iran knows we're at war with the Bidens. Anyway, Roger Stone, let me uh, ask you about carving up the uh, Sean Hannity debate between Ron DeSantis uh, representing the red state of Florida and uh, Gavin Newsom representing the blue state of California. What would you make of that? Uh, Gavin Newsom is, without any question, one of the most talented, smoothest, Mm. Uh, agile con men I have ever seen in American politics. Because <laughs> yes, let's right. face it, he he went in with the weaker hand without any question. Still came across as more likable than uh, <laughs> than uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, and he avoided answering virtually every direct question. Uh, but he clearly had a you know a pre planned response to every rough spot, whether it was tax rates or uh, or, or crime rates. Uh, I do kind of I love Sean Hannity, but I do think he and, and uh, DeSantis kind of teamed up here to bushwhack uh, 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 the governor of California. Ron DeSantis kind of sadly, just performance wise, reminds me of Richard Nixon in the first presidential debate. He just comes across as tight, sweaty, nervous, mm -hmm. a little bit of a five o'clock shadow. I th so I would guess I would say on substance, I would give the debate. To uh, to DeSantis, but on style, I'd have to give the debate to Newsom. <laughs> Mr. Personality, Ron DeSantis. Well, Roger Stone, I, I know you're a supply sider, so let me. 
a 13% marginal tax rate in California is still higher than zero in Florida, even though Gavin Newsom denied it. Don't you think 13 is higher than zero? Well, and their sales tax in California is higher. So the way Florida gets its revenue, since it's not getting it from income tax, is getting very good to be with you. Quick break, and then uh, climate expert Bjorn Lomborg is going to come on and tell us why we're spending all this money for climate change, and it ain't worth it. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to The Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. Bjorn Lomborg, folks, president of the Copenhagen Consensus author and visiting fellow at Hoover Institution, former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute in Copenhagen. And he's the author of Best Things First, The 12 Most Efficient Solutions for the World's Poorest and Our Global SDG Promises. Okay. Bjorn, I never give you enough time on TV. We've got 10 minutes here on radio. 10 minutes. (laughs) That's an eternity, and you're very kind to do this. Um, I want to go back to some of the numbers in your op-ed piece in the journal this week, Net Zero Fails the Cost-Benefit Test. It's very compelling. You've got a number in here. Each dollar spent will avoid less than 17% of climate damage. The total undiscounted loss over the century is beyond $1,800 trillion. For comparison, global GDP last year was a little over $100 trillion. So you're saying the cost is 18 times the world economy. Is that what you're saying? Yes. It's obviously, we're going to be richer in the future, uh, so it's probably a little less. But yes, it's worth pointing out that over the next 80 years or so, we're going to be spending so much if we actually carry through the Paris promises. We're going to be spending so much and delivering fairly little in benefit that the total loss will be $1,800 trillion or the equivalent of 18 times the GDP of all the countries in the world in 2022. So why are they doing this? I mean, where are the calmer heads to prevail? Well, I think partly, Larry, it's because nobody's ever done this. Uh, So these are new numbers that have just come out uh, in the last couple of months. And nobody wants to hear this because everyone just wants to say nice stuff. Oh, we're going to go net zero. Oh, it's going to be a beautiful world. Look, the reality is global warming is a real problem. But it's a much, much bigger problem if you end up tackling it really badly. So we should tackle global warming but we should do so smartly. Right now, everyone seems to be determined doing something that's just going to cost a fortune, and, of course, thereby making sure it'll never actually happen because we're going to run out of money before we uh, we end up going net zero. So in some sense, this is just because a lot of people are trying to sell you a lot of stuff. Uh, obviously, a lot of people are getting a lot of subsidies and a lot of people are getting a lot of power out of saying, this is a real emergency, we need all your money. But the reality is, We need to be smart if we're going to fix climate change. I mean, you've said to me time and time again in recent years that we should be nurturing technological advances, not just throwing money and subsidies at this. Exactly, Larry. Look, the fundamental point is 
you don't solve stuff by telling everyone, I'm, I'm sorry, would you mind being a little poorer, a little colder, a little less comfortable, fly less, drive less, eat less meat? That's never going to win you any elections. The reality is, if you're going to fix this problem, you will need to come up with green energy that's cheaper than fossil fuels. If that happens, you won't just have rich, well-meaning Americans in California and elsewhere uh, buying a little bit of, of renewables, but you'll actually have everyone switch, not just these rich guys, but also China, India, and Africa. And that's what this making sure everyone gets on board with a, an eventual transition. That happened through technological change. We, we didn't fix, you know, back in the 1970s when, when we worried immensely about the fact that we wouldn't be able to feed the world. We didn't fix it by telling everyone, I'm sorry, you have to eat a little less in the rich world and then we'll send it to the poor world. We fixed it through technological innovation, the green revolution that basically produced a lot more food on every acre of land. That's how you fix problems. Can we have uh, in the States uh, and elsewhere, presumably, but can we have what I call an, uh, what we used to call an all of the above strategy? Instead of ruling out all fossil fuels, which seems to be the policy of this administration and others, why can't we just let everything go and let the technology advance us? I mean, even fossil fuels... There's such a thing as dirty oil versus relatively clean oil. Natural gas is a clean-burning fuel. I, if I'm not mistaken, Europe or the EU has reclassified it as a clean-burning fuel. Yeah. In other words, why kill an enormous amount of energy to produce a much less amount of energy? Well, that's a very good question, and you are not going to be able to you know, live your life if, if you stop using fossil fuels right now. Remember, fossil fuels power 80% of the whole world. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense to say we're just going to switch over to renewables. People do not want to do that as long as they're much more expensive. But think about the idea of, you know, people are arguing we could get fourth generation nuclear, those small modular nuclear uh, generators that mm -hmm. potentially could be very safe and incredibly cheap. Now, they're not there yet, so I'm not promising you this, Larry, but if they get there, everyone would switch. It wouldn't have to be that you have to enforce that people need to do this, that, and the other, but it's simply the fact that people will go to the cheapest energy. This is why the U.S. switched a lot from coal to gas, uh, because of the fracking revolution. That's an innovation that has actually brought the U.S. much cheaper energy, which was great, but also switched people from ga uh, coal to gas, which happens to reduce carbon emissions dramatically. So, again, the point here is, it's it, you absolutely shouldn't be saying you have to use this technology. But I think the future is not going to be all of the above. It's going to be the cheapest and most effective of the above. And we have to make sure through innovation that that is also one of the green alternatives. Well, I think that's the that's the market based capitalist based approach. That's the growth and prosperity based yeah. approach. I mean, I don't oh, want to have absolutely. I, th I think we forget how incredibly dependent we are on energy. Energy is what's made us rich. Energy yes. is what you know started the Industrial Revolution, and we need that both in our rich countries to keep us warm and to fly us everywhere and to you know, produce our food. But this is also true for poor countries. What we need to make sure 
is that we make better energy for the future. And that's where innovation can come in. You know, we, we support yeah. innovation in lots of other areas, in medical sciences, because they make breakthroughs in the long run. We should right. do the same thing for energy. Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus and a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Thank you, Bjorn. Appreciate it very, very much. Folks, Great. take a quick break. We're going to take a look at the economy from uh, respected economist Joe Lavornia. I'm Kudlow. Economy next up. Stay with us, please. Much more coming. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Question is recession or no recession? That is the question. We bring in my dear friend Joe Lavornia, who's a former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council during the Trump administration. He is presently back on Wall Street. He's the chief economist at SMBC Nico Securities. Joe, welcome back to the show. Um, I'm looking at some recent data points. The ISM manufacturing index down again. I guess it's the, um, I don't know, I guess it's the uh, eighth or ninth or tenth straight. We were looking at the leading uh, economic indicators from the conference board. That thing's down 19 straight months. The yield curve is still inverted, but. Uh, Wall Street doesn't. Wall Street's looking for a soft landing. So, what does Joe Lavorne say about all this? Larry, we, as you know, great to be with you. Uh, we had the recessionary, uh, inflationary recession in the first half of uh, 2022, and uh, for some time now, we've uh, we've been thinking that we're going to get a more traditional recession. W one of the factors why we haven't had it, although you can't prove the counterfactual, is all the liquidity the Fed added. Uh, back in uh, back in March, when SVB and other regional banks failed, that sort of stemmed the recessionary tides a little bit. But I'd argue, Larry, based on what we're seeing in the labor market, the rise in uh, continuing claims, the rise in the unemployment rate, the flows uh, out of the labor force into unemployed, uh, all those things suggest that a more uh, traditional recession is likely to take hold. Uh, we've obviously, as you know, we've had tremendous and excessive fiscal spending. I, I've calculated that uh, we have about 3.2 trillion of excess spending from January of 21 to present. Uh, that's offset some of this monetary tightening, but thankfully, at least on the spending side, we're slowing. Uh, but I think these rates are too high, and eventually we're going to dip. The question is when. My guess is by the first quarter of next year, if we're not already in a recession. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of, it's funny, um, the media doesn't really cover it, but you look at this, I like the uh, ISM manufacturing index. Um, so let's see, production was down, employment was down, backlogs were down. And the other thing I want to ask you about, uh, real GDP was up in the third quarter. Now that the GDP now is uh, under 2% again from the Atlanta Fed, so you're going to get a big slowdown. But real GDP was up in the, in the third quarter. But, Joe, um, for all our listeners, something called um, real gross domestic income 
uh, has actually fallen over the past year slightly. It was only up one and a half percent in the third quarter. It was up a half a percent in the second quarter and a half a percent in the first quarter. Why is this income measure so much lower than the overall GDP measure? Uh, yes, Larry, and, and you're right. The, the ISM has been weak. It's, it's been under 50, so manufacturing's been contracting for 13 straight months, which uh-huh. is incredible. So uh, the income number, so essentially the way the, the government statisticians do it, somebody's spending is another person's income, and income generates spending. Uh, even though they're the opposite sides of the same coin, given the massive size of the economy and statistical error, they don't always match. Uh, so you're right that the GDP is up 3%. It looks like a boom. Of course, if it was a boom, why is consumer sentiment and presidential approval rating so low? Uh, the income side is shrinking. The income side, to me, is a better proxy, Larry, because uh, nobody pays tax on phantom income, and income is benchmarked to tax receipts. Hmm. If we look at the household survey, whose sample, as you know, changes month to month and is better at capturing inflection points, it suggests that job growth uh, is overstated by about 1.7 million. That's a huge number, and would also reinforce this notion that when you look at the income side of the economy, it does not show the dynamism and the robustness as those GDP figures suggest. I guess on a more I don't know, optimistic note, but on a more statistically credible note, it does look like GDP is going to be much weaker this quarter. Joe, what's the profit situation? Well, the profit situation is certainly slowing because of demand. Um, the overall levels are high, uh, but my guess is you're going to see profits continue to soften. Uh, because domestic demand actually isn't as robust as those GDP figures suggest. So what, okay, uh, what about the other indicator? Uh, this is, Kevin Hassett uh, showed me this. Um, the conference board's index of leading indicators has been falling now for 19 straight months, which really puts it among the worst performances in the entire post-World War II period. Now, hardly anybody talks about the LEI anymore, but it just seems to me that's consistently showing a weakening in the economy. Oh, absolutely, Larry. We are down 8% year-on-year in the LEI. Uh, Importantly, if we even take the yield curve out, we're still very soft, so it's not driven by one component. In fact, the majority of indicators are shrinking. Uh, You mentioned profits, which, by the way, just so your listeners know, we're down about almost 1% uh, corporate profits year on year. And someone famous said they're the mother's milk of uh, of prosperity or something. The mother's milk of stocks. (laughs) That's right. Uh, So they're down year on year. And uh, but but Kevin's exactly right. The uh, the indicators, leading indicators are weakening because manufacturing soft, because uh, housing is very soft, and I think that's where, Larry, you're going to see going forward a lot of job loss because we've got record numbers of construction workers despite the fact the housing market is completely frozen, and you'll see that rate move higher, that unemployment rate move higher. So you're, I'm looking at the tables. Economic profits are down uh, slightly, almost 1% over the last four quarters. Domestic non-financial profits uh, pretty flat, up 0.4%. Uh, I'm surprised stocks are doing as well as they're doing, and they're doing very well at the moment, um, probably because of lower interest rates. We're going to have a stock yeah, market segment right. later. I mean, the, 
the decline in the 10-year yield, just to give you an example, it was a massive decline uh, in the month of November, which I think makes sense because inflation's moving lower, commodity mm-hmm. prices are moving lower. Uh, but that was the largest decline in the 10-year note, about 65 basis points that we had since December of 08. And that certainly, as you said, is giving a lift to stocks because people are thinking we're going to have a soft landing and avoid the recession. But as I've told many people for many times, recessions and soft landings all look the same, at least initially. Hmm. Um, fourth quarter will be soft, and you think the recession begins in Q1? Uh, yeah, it could, it could actually be starting right now. Anna Wong, who you might remember, uh, she's now with Bloomberg, but she worked for uh, – she might have worked for Kevin, but she worked for Tyler and, and, and Tomat and the um, and the Council of Economic Advisors. She's very good, and she was actually saying the other day that uh, she thought we might be in recession, which is certainly consistent, Larry, with, with what the unemployment rate's doing. Unfortunately, the data, as you know, are, are not particularly useful sometimes at inflection points. But I would say we could either you're in one now or we'll be in one by the, uh, by the first quarter of next year. So inflation is definitely coming down. I mean, prices may still be high, but the inflation rate is coming down. So you're kind of suggesting a deflationary recession. And it'll be the be the second one in the last couple of years. That's right. That's right. That's that's certainly the risk. I think people will certainly be talking about the uh, about about deflationary tendencies if we go into a recession. The thing, Larry, too, though, is that the um, as you know, wages, nominal wages are slowing. But more importantly, we've had one of the worst three-year performances in real wages. Uh, despite the fact only recently the unemployment rate's gone up, uh, on record, uh, we've had no real wage growth. Living standards have been falling. So even though the, the, this inflation rate is declining, uh, that's one of the reasons why you're not seeing people think the economy is that good, because their living standards are still dropping. All right. Joe Avornia is now the chief economist at SMBC Nico Securities, formerly the chief economist of the White House National Economic Council. Thank you, Joey. Appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. Outside of the break, uh, we're going to have Greg Jarrett. And the question before the House is, did Trump's bankers blow up Letitia James's case against him? I kind of think they did. A victimless crime. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. James's case against Trump, this crazy civil fraud case brought by the New York State Attorney General Letitia James. And um, the bankers testified that they love the guy. So we have Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. And his latest book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. We're going to get a good patriotic document before we're over. So, Greg, I find this a very interesting turn of events. Deutsche Bank, they're the bankers, loved Trump, made money from Trump, wanted to give him more loans, didn't care one whit how he valued his assets because he kept paying the principal and interest off. In fact, he even paid off his loans ahead of schedule. So what's Letitia James uh, crowing about? Well, the defense uh, has <laughs> argued that the bank walked away with more than $100 million in interest 
profits uh, from Donald Trump. He never missed a payment. He paid his final loans off early, as you point out. And so they're bringing this case under a consumer protection statute, but consumers didn't need protection. Consumers were more than happy. Nobody was injured. Nobody was harmed. Uh, and in fact, they considered uh, Donald Trump to be what they referred to as a whale. They wanted to do more business with him. Um, so, you know, this is one of the ironies of using a consumer protection statute that completely undermines more than 150 years of common law, which requires proof of intent to deceive in a fraud case. And yet, Letitia James and the judge have thrown it out the window. It's obvious they're biased. They brought a prejudice case. Uh, and, I, you know, I just don't see any uh, culpability on the part of Trump in a judgment against him standing up uh, in a higher court. The co-chief executive of Deutsche Bank testified that back in 2013, in a meeting at Trump Towers, he suggested the bank could lend Mr. Trump even more money because Mr. Trump's credit was so strong. So wh what did Trump do wrong? And who's who's the victim here? I'm looking for a victim. Well, you know, the uh, prosecution's case all along, at which the judge seems to be buying hook, line and sinker, is that he inflated uh, his assets. But an executive, top exec at, Deutsche Bank took the witness stand this week and said, are you kidding me? It doesn't matter whether he uh, valued it at 2.6 or uh, 4.9. Um, those are the two different valuations. He said, either way, he had more than enough assets to justify the loans. And the executive said, look, um, borrowers always uh, have a different financial statement than what the bank's due diligence eventually derives. And, you know, as long as there are plenty of assets and lots of money uh, for a borrower to secure the loan, we don't care. Uh, yes. And here there was more than enough money. Yes, and uh, the banker said, uh, regarding valuation, so there's differences of opinion, but what matters is the repayment. That's exactly right. And there is no victim here. Nobody was hurt by this at all. But, Greg, you know, this is part of the, I mean, I, I believe that a lot of this is coming out of the White House. All these crazy lawsuits. This, this Letitia James, state attorney general, she's a George Soros uh, protege, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they want to throw him in jail for 700 years. And even worse, or as worse, they want to take his businesses away. Now, that's an important part of this lawsuit, it seems to me, because why the heck would a businessman or an entrepreneur or anybody want to start a business in New York? They'd look at what they did to Trump. If they had a difference of a political opinion or a difference of opinion with the authorities, they lose their whole business. I would say this repels business from New York. That's really a key part of this. It really does. Um, you know, basically, with, without the law justifying uh, the punishment here, um, they're uh, going to fine him a quarter of a billion uh, dollars uh, and take away his business and ability uh, to, you know, do real estate transactions in New York. 
uh, if that is the new template, if if that's the pattern, uh, what business person would want to do business in New York? They'd rather go to some other friendly environment in Florida or Texas or someplace else. So, you know, this uh, judgment, which I'm sure uh, in Goron the judge uh, will hold against Trump, is going to have a disincentive and discouraging effect mm-hmm. on other businesses that are already fleeing the high taxes in New York. Yes, absolutely. That's really a key part of this thing. Um, let's talk about the Constitution of the United States and other patriotic documents, which is your latest book. Um, last week, I know we were truncated, but you mentioned Reagan's tear down this wall. Give us another patriotic document. Well, you know, picking up on Reagan, it, it wasn't just the Gorbachev challenge that ended the Cold War uh, that really transformed the world. Um, but his masterful address in his inauguration, government is not the solution to our problem. Mm-hmm. Government is the problem. And it was exactly what he had uh, warned about in 1964 in his famous uh, speech that vaulted him uh, as the unabashed voice of conservatism when he decried the growing threat of an all-encompassing government that wanted to control every aspect of our lives. So there are four different uh, speeches of Ronald Reagan, each and every one of them uh, shaped American history and indeed world history. But I'll give you just a couple of others. Frederick Douglass, when he argued, we the people does not mean we the white people. And Victoria Woodhull, a suffragette, who argued that the Constitution makes no distinction of sex and women are the equals of men. Both of those figures, I think, are overlooked in American education today, and they need to be remembered and heralded for their wisdom and their motivating arguments that changed American history. And among the founders, Greg Jarrett? You know, I I think John Adams, Mm. who cautioned that only the ballot box in a representative democracy would prevent men in power from becoming ravenous beasts of prey. Uh, That was a clarion warning uh, to all Americans that was so prescient, because more than 200 years later, we saw those ravenous beasts of prey uh, try to drive the duly elected president from office uh, with the greatest mass delusion in American political history, the Russia hoax, the title of my first book. And, you know, Adams knew this would happen especially unelected bureaucrats, people uh, who later became uh, authoritarians at the FBI, the Department of Justice, our intelligence agencies, who worked in collusion uh, against Trump based on an utter fraud. And now this uh, past week, um, I read there, uh, let's see, the judge in Washington, D.C., uh, says Trump can be can be tried for January sixth. He's not a king. He's not a, he's not above the law. I, I'm still trying to figure out what did he do on January sixth. What did he do except gave a speech, free speech? Yeah, judge, why is that? Why is that a crime? Well, Judge 
Chutkin's uh, decision is questionable, but it was preordained. She was never going to grant a motion to dismiss. Uh, the case against him is a conspiracy to defraud the government. Uh, again, you have to show uh, knowledge of an intentionally false statement. And look, his defense is, I truly believed I won the election. Mm -hmm. And I exercised under the law uh, the challenges, both in court and in Congress, uh, challenging the electors, which is exactly what Democrats did in two previous presidential elections. Mm -hmm. is, is that uh, intent to deceive and thus fraud? It's not. Did Hillary Clinton say the same thing? Oh, yeah. And, you know, it was Jamie Raskin, of all people, mm -hmm. along with a host of other Democrats who challenged the electors in 2017, just as Donald Trump's allies in Congress did the same in 2021. Yeah. Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. The name of the book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Thank you, Greg. Terrific stuff. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. Other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work, a roaring stock market. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And by the way, you can join us during the week on Fox Business Network, FBN, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4, you can text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. The show does play again at 7 to 8. And here on radio, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, all around the country, throughout the world, and the solar system, including the Milky Way. So let's do some stock market work. Big week for stocks. Up 855 points, most of it the last two days, Thursday and Friday. And the rise in stocks, accompanied by a large decline in interest rates. The market rates, uh, wow, two-year note down 40 basis points, 40 basis points. The 10-year bond, 10-year uh, note down 26 basis points. The 10-year is 421, for those of you who follow these things. That thing was over 5% a few weeks ago. So it's dropped not quite one full percentage point, but that's quite a move. Not surprisingly, the stocks love it, discounting higher future earnings and cash flows. So let's talk about this story. It looks like a bull market, I guess. Jack Berugian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jim LeCamp, Senior Vice President for Investments at Morgan Stanley. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Uh, Jack Berugian, interest rates down and stocks up. I don't want to make this any harder than it needs to be. Well, you know what? If you're a portfolio manager and you're not fully invested in this environment, you're going to be losing your job. <laughs> and I think that, quite frankly, what we have seen over the course of these last few sessions are portfolio managers that were usually caught on the wrong side of the trade. You know, uh, it, there's an old saying uh, on the street that the, usually people trading 
after Thanksgiving are those that have to trade. And the reason is because a lot of people usually have closed their books by then or at least have slowed things down. So, so you're really seeing that impact, especially when, when you see this move that we just saw in the 10-year. But, Larry, you know, you, you said how high the 10-year the went. Remember, it was also as low as three and a quarter. So this move that we've seen in the 10-year is trading like the S&P 500. It went from three and a quarter to over 5%. This volatility we're seeing in the long end of the curve is, is a red flag in and of itself. And, and it's something that, that people have to be very, very cautious of because what we're doing now is we're pricing in a, a perfect soft landing. And I had an old mentor that used to be a manager at the Harvard Endowment Fund and he used to say to me, Jack, when they're pricing in perfection, beware. And, and I believe that's where we're at right now. Well, so uh, you're going to sell the market, Tim LeCamp? You know, I, I agree with Jack. I, uh, the, the market, if you look at economic diffusion indices, uh, they've really turned down in October, and uh, we're pricing in a soft landing. But a lot of there, a lot of economic deterioration is in place. Yeah. And uh, you look at the, this market, Larry. It's traded perfectly with the calendar all year. Uh, early in the year, we rallied, uh, had a little hiccup in the late summer, as we usually do. Then we started rallying in November, like we usually do. And the breadth uh, started to expand a little bit. Uh, I noted the Russell broke out this week, which is a long time coming on that. If we stick with the calendar, then the next uh, week or two, we might see some weakness followed by some strength right at year end. But after that, I think we have some issues. I, I think the, uh, uh, the the credit situation that we're seeing with credit a little tighter, um, although financial conditions uh, indices have improved, so we have to tap the brakes on that a little bit. But uh, the bottom line, and we saw the ISM numbers come out, uh, they dipped down. The, uh, the diffusion indices are the weakest that we've seen uh, since July. So I, I think we're going to have to tap the brakes a little bit once we get to the end of the year, not to mention the fact that valuations are really pushing it, considering what the economy is doing. So I do think this expectation of a soft landing may be premature. Joe Lavornia was on about a half hour ago. He's a very distinguished Wall Street economist, worked in the White House. Uh, he thinks we're heading for a deflationary recession. He thinks we may already be in a recession, Jack Bruger. Now, that's an interesting contrary view. But uh, as Jim LeCamp was suggesting, you've got a lot of, a lot of sloppy numbers out there, leading, leading economic indicators falling 19 straight months. Mm -hmm. The ISMs for manufacturing are down. Continuing claims uh, for uh, mm -hmm. unemployment are rising, and that, nobody pays any attention to that, but they should. I mean, I think it's a very mixed bag. The other thing, Larry, is something that you brought out a few months back, and you were probably the first one to bring it up, and that is money supply. Mm -hmm. We have seen a, a huge decrease in money supply, something that we have not seen in decades. Uh, and, and that is something that, that could come back to haunt us also. But you're right. It, it seems as if we're looking at what I would call a deferred recession. It, you know, just, you know it's, it's almost like when you pull – profits forward in pricing stocks, uh, we've almost deferred our recession and pushed it out another few months. 
But I, I think, you know, uh, I think that, that he's spot on. I think we're looking at a disinflationary, recessionary condition that's going to probably hit the market and more than likely start at the beginning of 24 and work its way throughout the year. You know, remember, you know, when you look at commodity prices, they're, they're in many cases, you know, a, a two-thirds of where they were at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. uh, half of where they were in the beginning of the year. In some cases, you've seen complete, you know, bear markets. In, in some of the commodities. So, you know, that's telling you something, except for gold. And gold is rallying and breaking out, Larry. Mm-hmm. And that is the one market that I look at that, that whenever I, I do my analysis on everything else, it, it, it puts out, you know, a big warning signal. Like, why is gold doing what it's doing in this environment? And it's, 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 it's a little scary. Uh, why it's is it? That, that we need to. Because why well, is it? It, it, feel, it, feels, it feels as if gold is telling us that the, the Fed is faced with two choices, currency debasement or, or a complete deflationary recession. And they're well, probably – Bitcoin's telling you the same thing. Yeah. So, so, and, and that's what I worry about, Larry. I worry that, the, that they're going to let – they're going to let happen to the market what happened, you know, throughout the, the, the 40s and 50s. They're going to just debase us out of, of this problem. And if that's the case, every saver, everything that we've been taught to do over the course of our lifetimes is wrong. Or alternatively, though, you listen to Jay Powell, um, he's still quite hawkish. And the Fed might want to deflate. Remember, they got a 2% inflation target. And even though the inflation rate is uh, a lot lower than it was a year, a year and a half ago. It's a little more than 3%. The Fed wants to meet its target. I mean, Jay Powell's got a lot of religion on that. So I just wonder whether, I mean, I don't know what gold is telling us. Uh, Bitcoin, yeah, 30, it's almost back to 39,000, up 2.7%. Bitcoin is up 135% year to date 135 percent it is the single best performer in my entire stock sheet and i've got so many damn things here but bitcoin is scaring let me ask you about another uh jim lecamp down there in uh in uh, the oil patch um mm-hmm. so opec plus is continuing its uh production cuts but uh oil is not listening brent crude well, voluntary Brent crude seventy nine dollars. Okay, West Texas seventy four dollars. <throat> I'm going to sneeze. Anyhow, um, what do you make of that? Okay, so a lot of that has to do with U.S. production, which is really high, and that's um, uh, that that that's interesting because the rig count is down in the U.S. quite a bit over the last year. And what that implies is ultimately we're going to run into a massive depletion wall, and you're going to see prices rise. And I think that's why, despite the huge output in the U.S., which is now significantly higher than Saudi Arabia, and this is despite Exxon, Chevron, et cetera, not committing uh, a large amount of new projects uh, dis, uh, that they normally would have done when prices uh, clips north of about 75. They didn't do it, and that's why the rig count's not up. But they've been squeezing uh, more blood out of the turnip, and that's good news in the short run. It's kept prices low, but the Strategic Petroleum Reserves have not been replenished, 
and we're going to hit depletion walls in the oil patch, ultimately we're going to have a real problem. The other issue with oil prices, in my view, is that Wall Street is saying, hey, we may be going into either a soft landing or a recession. If so, that would imply less energy demand, Uh, but but we're not seeing it uh, with the airlines. We're not seeing it with stocks like uh, booking uh, holdings. Uh, Those are all rallying here. You you look at uh, people are still traveling, but I think what Wall Street is saying is that we're probably going to enter something like a recession, either a a soft or a hard landing, and uh, that that would imply less demand. But the real issue is going to be depletion in the past. If Joe Biden is reelected, he's going to bomb the oil fields. He's going to bomb the Permian Basin. Not not Iranian oil fields. He's going to bomb American oil fields. I mean, that's that's so the so the, the the super big sisters are going to have to retrench. Why I'm three to, hours away from Midland. I got to create some distance. They're going uh, no, to they're gonna construct an oil companies are going to construct an iron dome around the Permian Basin <laughs> to protect themselves. All right, let's take a quick break. Jack Perusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Jim LeCamp, senior VP of Investments at Morgan Stanley. I'm Kudlow. Take a quick break. More on stocks after this. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks with Jack Perusian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jim LeCamp, senior VP of Investments at Morgan Stanley. Jack Perusian, talk to me some more about commodities. I'm just looking at the... Uh, we talked about gold. Silver had a very good week. Silver actually did better than gold this week. Uh, oil fell. Copper, however, was up uh, two percentage points. CRB futures. CRB futures overall was actually down. Um, would you buy commodities here, Jack? No, I don't think I would, Larry. Yeah. I, I, you know, it feels as if the, the commodity markets are always a precursor. They're, they're, they tell us uh, what to expect. Remember, these are input costs. So, so when they start to go lower, usually that's an indication that that there's going to be less demand, uh, you know, or oversupply. So, in this case, it feels as if the market's telling us there's going to be less demand out there. You know, that and the fact that, you know, the way this tenure has traded, it's created a lot of uncertainty. Uh, but more importantly, you know, what it's done is, you know, we've seen the dollar also stay relatively strong, mm. um, even throughout all of that volatility in the tenure. And with a strong dollar, that also puts pressure on commodities, too. So, no, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of buying commodities here. I think that we'll probably see those go down. I do think we'll see the, the, the 10-year rates go higher, uh, which is traded as a commodity, especially in our markets uh, in Chicago. Uh, and, and more importantly, I think that what we've got to do is be very careful, especially with what we're looking at uh, w- with equities. Uh, equities feel as if something doesn't smell right. This feels as if what we're going to go and experience in the next few weeks is going to be a blow-off top, uh, mm-hmm. things that we have all experienced and seen before, and, and that's what we need to be on the guard. Would you de-risk uh, equities, Jim LeCamp? I would, but I probably would push that off to the end of the year um, in that, uh, again, this this market has followed the counter. And, and, look, we've seen a lot of groups break out. I saw the aerospace. A lot of uh, the aerospace stocks are breaking out. Uh, as I mentioned, the airlines, the home builders have, have done well. Uh, some of the tech names. I, I would say the semiconductor index is inconclusive, but you did see a breakout on the Russell um, 2000 this week. So I think there's a little bit of gas left in the tank, 
but I wouldn't commit a lot of fresh money here, and I wouldn't start de-risking probably until the end of the year, maybe early January. Uh, Jack, the curve is very steeply inverted, uh, and I'm looking at um, the New York Fed model, so that's the three-month Treasury bill and the 10-year note. So all these rates went down, but not the bill rates. So 536 is what I have. It's down four basis points. But the two-year note was down 40 basis points. The five-year note down 35, and the 10-year note down 26 basis points. So the curve is actually inverted more uh, from three months out to 10 years. Now, that's a recession signal, according to the New York Fed model. Um, which is consistent with what you both are talking about. But it's also a Fed signal, right? The two-year note, um, there's not going to be any more Fed tightening in our lifetime, right? Well, you know, it doesn't make sense, Larry. It's almost like two different signals. You've got the the Fed coming out and saying we're still a long way from our 2% target. I mean, he said that time and time again. So whether they, they... they, they continue to, to raise rates now or they do it later, they're still not there. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality is that they won't be there if, you know, and, and, and here's the flip side to that. Everyone's talking about rate cuts. If we see rate cuts within the next year, it's not going to be for the right reason. It's going to be because there's an economic problem, because there's mm-hmm. turmoil. That's mm-hmm. why we're going to see rate cuts. You know, we're not, that's, that's the signal right now that the bond market, especially on the short end, is telling people. If there are, we're getting some very mixed signals across the board, and I think you know, both of you would agree to that. This is probably the, the, the most mixed signal market I think we've ever seen in our lifetimes. Well, the Govey, and, and a lot of it, the Govey market doesn't believe the Fed. That's what you got. They don't believe the Fed. The Fed funds futures are suggesting 55% now chance of a cut by March, and Mm -hmm. they've really moved that up. I mean, two weeks ago, uh, that was a very negligible number. And then you go out to May, and you've got 41% chance of one cut, 41% chance, uh, another 41% chance of two cuts or at least a 50 basis points cuts. So you've got the Fed funds futures are saying a very high probability of cuts in the spring. So to Jack's point, if you're going into recession, the Fed doesn't want to lower their target rate because they haven't gotten their target of inflation, which is 2%. And it may take them quite a while to get there. It tends to be rather stubborn, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But the market doesn't believe that. The market just figures the Fed's going to cave in. That could be the gold signal, Jack. That could be the gold signal. Premature easing by the Fed. I I think we're all trying to figure that out. And and if that's the case, and if they start to cut rates, and they're doing that, they're going to lose complete credibility, Mm -hmm. right? And and we all know when that happens, uh, you know, then then all you know, hell breaks loose. Well, they are going to keep shrinking their balance sheet, regardless of what the Fed funds rate does. They're going to keep shrinking their balance sheet. I mean, one of the key points here is they put a lot of liquidity in for the uh, bank problem this uh, past winter. But now they're trying to soak it up again. Anyway, we're out of time. We've soaked up all of our time. Jack Berusian of the Global Smart Commodity Group, thank you. Jim LeCamp of Morgan Stanley, thank you very much. Folks, we're going to take a little break, and then the other side of the break, money and politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. Please, straight ahead. We'll be right back. 
from Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right, let's do some money in politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and uh, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host of More Money, following this show on many of these same stations. Welcome, kids, back. Steve Moore, Gavin Newsom doesn't agree that 13% tax rate is higher than zero. He's just had a problem with that. There's a math problem, I think. <laughs> well, first of all, I thought it was, uh, it was a good debate. It was a lot more interesting and informative uh, and entertaining than than any of the Republican debates. So I thought, I, you know, it was it was good. And I thought Sean Hannity did a great job. Uh, you know, it was ba- basically the, the debate was um, one of style versus substance. So, uh, you know, um, Gavin Newsom is a Bill Clinton type of guy. He's very he's very slick uh, and he does. He's, he's kind of fact free. But, you know, he smiles <laughs> a lot. And uh, meanwhile, um, I thought that DeSantis, if, if you just looked at what arguments DeSantis was making, you know, he it was just a very one sided debate. I mean, Florida is doing substantially better than California. Now, to answer your question about tax rates, you know, what's happened in California and by the way, New York as well, because they both have the highest tax rates in the country. They're just bleeding people. And so when the left keeps saying, you know, soak the rich, you lose the rich. They leave. And they hollow out a, a state. And that's what's happening in California. It's happening in New York. It's happening in New Jersey. When, when, is, when are liberals going to get it that taxing the rich does not work? And meanwhile, all these millionaires and billionaires are going to Florida. They're going to Texas. They're going to Tennessee. And uh, they're rebuilding and really making those states the, the powerhouses of the country today. So that's the big story. Red states are absolutely annihilating blue states in terms of economic growth and prosperity. One other quick point, you know, um, and that is that you've seen the studies that the southeast, the states like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, those states have replaced the northeast states like New Jersey, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Massachusetts as the epicenter of the country economically. They have a bigger GDP now for the first time in history because they're, they have free market policies. And I think they're replacing the, uh, the they're going to become the epicenter of the country politically. I mean, I, I think the, Re- the Republican Party, Liz, is the party of the South and yep. the Sun Belt. Uh, it's the red state party. And that's got to be a key theme in the presidential elections. So and let, I would let me say, just add, can I just add one thing yeah, to that? Go ahead. You know, if California stays on the, you know, the population decline that it's on, mm-hmm. it will lose another three or four electoral yeah. votes yeah. by the year 2030. That's never happened before in history. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I really like Mike Johnson winning the speakership, however that turns out. But um, he's from Louisiana. Again, the House should be based on the Republican strength in the red states. That's got to be a key theme. And Liz, um, one thing, uh, Gavin Newsom was saying, well, we want to tax, uh, we want to tax rich people. We don't want to tax the middle class. <laughs> so uh, if, you, if you're earning about $60,000, $65,000 a year in California, your marginal tax rate is 8%. Right. Now, once again, Liz, I, I, I appeal to your math. Eight is higher than zero. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I thought Sean Hannity actually had very good data points to refute uh, Kevin Newsom's claims. It is, and it isn't just the tax situation, Larry. Everything California does makes life more yeah. expensive, and you can That's go right. right to the price of gasoline. Price of gasoline is measurably like 50 percent above uh, the national average. Who does that really hurt? It hurts middle class. Americans, their housing policies and very strict environmental policies raise the cost of housing and rents. Who does that hurt most? It hurts the middle class. So, yes, obviously his tax debate was truly laughable, but I would argue a lot of what Gavin Newsom had to say was factually discredited, even as he was speaking online, uh, and honestly laughable. I mean, he ha- he brought. He, he must have known that the <laughs> facts of Florida versus California yeah. were heavily against him going into right. this debate. He should have come prepared with alternative messaging. And once or twice he said something about California being host to a lot of good tech companies. Well, that's true. But he, that was about it. I mean, he had no defense, <laughs> no counterargument to what clearly is a story of success in Florida. And I have to say... I, uh, like a lot of people, I was expecting Ron DeSantis to be absolutely mowed down by a glibber, more telegenic uh, candidate in, uh, in Gavin Newsom. I thought just the opposite. I thought he rose to the occasion. He really handled himself well. And my goodness, he presented his story of success. And it's not just Florida's a beautiful state. I have done things as governor that have made the state mm-hmm. safer and better and more prosperous. Good for him. And and California has more poop. Yeah, boy, what a <laughs> right? what a data point, right? Poop map, and does, <laughs> and, uh, and Newsom's father-in-law uh, migrated to Florida. Yeah, that was a great moment. That was a great line. I you know, DeSantis. Really- uh, I, I don't think. I mean, I, I I personally think the nomination is preordained for Trump, but. That was a better Ron DeSantis than we've seen. I mean, yeah. he was. Yeah. It was. It was much better than he's been. It was, and in fact, you know, the big loser was Nikki Haley because she wasn't on the stage. Yeah. And I think, I think uh, there was a bit of, um, you know, new renewed interest in uh, DeSantis yes. because of his performance. And so it was a very smart thing for him to do this. It was a lifeline for him. His campaign had been. Uh, flagging. And um, now I think people say, you know, this guy's <laughs> got a lot of good policies. And so, I, look, I agree with you that, that you know, it looks like Trump is, you know, a, a huge, huge front runner. And it, it seems unlikely that either of those two are going to take the nomination away from him. But, you know, I think this sets him up well for, you know, 2028. We could see yeah. these two in a rematch in 2028. Well, I think the key thing is, is, the red state economics. I mean, yes. apart from the individuals and so forth, you, you, what you, and this is what Sean Hannity was trying to do. You, yeah. You've got a big change in this country, and the red states have all the economic momentum, and the economy is obviously going to be a gigantic issue. And there you have it. I thought, Liz, uh, you know, I know Gavin Newsom. And I know him rather well, actually, down through the years. I thought he had a lousy night. I thought he was very swarmy. Yeah. Uh, much too sarcastic. And I think for people looking for an exit ramp from Biden, they didn't see it in Gavin Newsom. I mean, 100 percent, 100 percent. That was just yep. just my instinct. I can't prove yeah. that. 
but I, I expected him to be better and cleverer. Instead, yes. he just denied the facts and was, you know, was pretty swarmy about it, wasn't he? I, I thought he was cheeky, snarky, yeah. whatever word you want to. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't expect that. I thought he would be kind of elegant, you know, and he yeah. wasn't at all. Um, but I think Steve is right. This really is maybe a conversation about 2028. We'll see. But it could, you know, I still don't think that Joe Biden will be the Democrat candidate. But I have to say, if this guy is the best the Democrats have, and that's kind of been the chatter for several months now, boy, am I enthused. I mean, and I thought DeSantis did something else very important, which he kept talking about perhaps too often the fact that Democrats want to take the California model and apply yes. it to the whole country. They do. That's, right. That's really, particularly yeah. on climate yeah. um, and various other issues, that's where they're looking for inspiration. Holy crow. I mean, are we really going to have rolling blackouts imposed <laughs> upon the entire country? Because Joe Biden, I don't know if you guys are following what's going on at COP28. Kerry has committed to getting rid of all coal-fired <laughs> power plants by 2035. 20% 20 of our, our electricity comes from those plants now. You know, what, what's he planning to do to supply that extra 20%? I have no idea. I don't think he does either. But I think this is really a big issue, and I'm glad that we – and I'm glad it talked about it. By the way, a thought for you guys, which I just talked to someone at Fox about, huge ratings. Five million people watched mm. this. No, uh, and good. to your point, Nikki Haley was left off. I think Sean Hannity would be smart to do Nikki Haley versus Gretchen Whitmer. There are two women also looking for the uh, nomination. Yeah. Let's have another idea. one. Let's see. Let's talk more about red state and blue state. I think it's fascinating. I think uh, Sean's. I think Sean should do Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Well, that would be even <laughs> <Yeah>. better. <laughs> think about that, um, Steve Moore. Uh, you know the red state message. I know you you do it in the hotline every day practically, and it's very important to do. Um, I want to go back to the COVID argument. In yes, there. I want to talk about that. You yep. know, because it, the way I read that, tell me if I'm wrong, I don't follow it as closely as you do, but basically the, the two states were about equal um, on COVID damage, on, on co, uh, you know, COVID mm -hmm. deaths, but one state, Florida, was open. Mm -hmm. I mean, they started out shut, but then they opened it rapidly. The other state was closed the whole time. So this debate about COVID, you know, you may as well open the damn place if you're if the death rates are going to be the same. Well, that's well, the, exactly. So um, Newsom kept saying, "Oh, you know, you you're responsible for the deaths of thousands of people." Well, wait a minute. If you if you just age adjust, because obviously COVID was a was a virus that was deadly to old people. It wasn't it wasn't deadly to young people. So, you know, if you obviously there are a lot of retirees who live in Florida, so they have an older population. If you adjust for that, Florida and California had actually California had a, a higher death rate, Larry, mm -hmm. when you do that. And so what's interesting is that um, he, <laughs> It just seemed like Newsom was lying about this data. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, I thought I heard Newsom. You needed like a, a polygraph test or something for everything that yeah. he said because yeah. he lied so often. But he said, oh, we had our schools open. No, they didn't. Yeah. They were closed throughout most of 2021, whereas Florida, Tennessee, Texas, Iowa, the red states were, were open. And that, that's a great example. By the way, COVID and, and the response by the states is a perfect example of how much more competent mm 
red states are than, than blue states. Right, Most of the red it. states opened up, and almost every blue state say, stayed shut down. And then, of course, they went to Washington to get a bailout from Biden because they shut down their economy. Yeah, let's uh, take a quick break. Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and Freedom Works and Heritage Foundation, and... Um, the host of More Money after this show on many of these same stations. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and the host of More Money after this show on many of these same <clears throat> stations. Um, Steve Moore, from the hotline, the White House is mystified that Americans are so <laughs> angry. I mean, this is interesting because inflation has come down, but key prices are still up. So it requires $119 to buy the same goods and services a family could afford with 100 bucks before the pandemic. And since uh, early 2020, uh, prices have risen about as much as they had in the full 10 years. Groceries up 25%, used cars up 35%, rents up 20%, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is something the Republicans should talk about more. I mean, they talk about inflation, but inflation has come down, the rate of change. But in fact, key prices and buying power, key prices are still up and buying power is still down. Just strikes me as something the GOP ought to be talking about. Yeah, well, let me give you one concrete example, and it's something that's really important that, uh, you know, the uh, kind of symbol of the American dream is to become a homeowner, right? That's uh, and, and that is the American dream that, you know, the, a 30 or 40 year old can go out uh, and get married and, and, and buy a home. They can't do that now because the uh, or many can't because the mortgage uh, rates have risen so much. They were less than 3% when Trump was president. Now they're about seven and a three quarters or seven and a half. They went up to almost 8%. Um, but to give, to give you a concrete example, that means that um, on a median value home, the mortgage payment, which under Trump was about $1,800, Larry, is now about $3,600. Yeah, right. So th right. they should be, t you're right, those bread and butter issues of food, of electricity, of, uh, of filling up your tank and buying a home. And by the way, rent is the same thing. Rental prices are way up. So I think that's the reason that even though Joe Biden keeps saying, well, things are so strong. No, for the middle class, people are really struggling and living paycheck to paycheck. And Liz, you see this. I mean, this is um, uh, this Corrine Jean-Pierre, but she's echoing the fibs that Joe Biden presses with and that we saw with Gavin Newsom. In other words, you go toward the election, all these Democrats, they can't keep lying uh, or they can't keep being incapable of telling the truth about the economy and other things. I mean, doesn't the public see right through this? It's not only factually wrong, which shows the failure of their policies, but also it's a character flaw for God's sakes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, somehow lying has become uh, the the norm of the yeah. realm, and it's, yeah. it's pretty discouraging if you yeah. uh, kind of look at that. I, I think that Democrats are just um, frustrated. Uh, there are some good aspects to the economy, such as full employment. Uh, mm -hmm. But even today, I was reading a long piece in the FT, I think it was, maybe in the journal, no, in the FT about – 
yeah, Americans are just wrong. You know, the the economy is great, and they just (laughs) and they're just refusing to accept it. But Larry, that I mean, I don't know about your family. Literally, every time my family goes to the grocery store, we come out and say, "Whoa, what just happened? How did that? How did I spend one hundred eighty dollars when I was expecting to spend half that?" And and I mean, you can just look at a variety. This week, uh, the big story was McDonald's sixteen dollar meal. And, you know, that sounds not very important, but if you are a family that takes your kids out to McDonald's every now and then, the fact that McDonald's has raised their prices 10% this year on top of 10% last year, and that PepsiCo has done the same thing, and Kraft has done the same thing, all the kind of uh, food producers that yeah. serve this nation have been putting through really big price increases. So, okay, so maybe now that isn't re- advancing as fast, but compared to two years ago, we know what we were paying, and now we're just paying a whole lot more. And in addition to housing, which Steve is totally right about, also cars. If you go to buy a new car or re-up your lease on a new car, it's like 40% higher. It's huge. So yeah. this is not something we're all imagining. I do think it's interesting that Americans are so completely unimpressed by low yeah. unemployment. But by the way, that happened under Trump. We're all used to everybody mm-hmm. having a job. God forbid over the next year that the slowdown, soft landing recession, whatever it turns out to be, really sees an increase in the unemployment rate. Because then I think these 32, 35 percent ratings on the economy for Biden could get even mm-hmm. worse. By the way, can I just uh, can I just correct Liz on one thing? Everything you said was right, um, Liz, except for about the new cars. Actually, EVs are falling in price because nobody wants to buy them. Yeah, well, there's that. That's true. That's I mean, there's a big story about. The, I mean, yeah, that's bringing down yeah, the CPI number. But in ter- if you're going out to buy the yeah. same car you have, you are right. really torched. Well, what's really so, funny about this, though, is that you know the, they're losing. Ford is losing like four thousand dollars for every. EV they sell. And now, Larry, they have to lower the price because nobody can buy them. That's the other big story that came out this week is 3,000 auto dealers around the country opposing Biden's uh, electric vehicle mandates because they can't sell them. 3,900. 3,900. That's a big number. I was just going to go back, though. Uh, Biden and Newsom used the same argument regarding high prices they blamed businesses for price yeah yeah now that argument is so old nobody believe i mean that's the the democratic response to high prices is to blame business in fact the democratic response to almost everything is to blame business how's that going to play in this election i don't think that's where the country is I don't know who you're asking that to. I worry, actually, that there is a good part of the country that buys that argument. People Mm -hmm. think they they want a villain, and big business has always been, um, you know, has often been viewed as the villain. But I don't think that is as important to Americans as who's in charge of the White House, who's Mm -hmm. in charge of policy. And happily, Americans, we have seen through polling, do connect the dots between big government spending and yes. inflation. And yes. I think that is something we have to be talking about. All right, kids. Thanks ever so much. Liz Peak and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. Thanks for a great show. We will be back next weekend. Ah.